0: Is this thing still on?
1: I think they can hear us a bit better now. Should we keep talking?
0: Of course. Let's say it louder for those in the back. Hi, and welcome to the Green Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion about health and healthcare. My name is Amy Archibald Burley.
1: And my name is Sarah Fung.
0: And we are your podcast hosts.
1: If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or any other podcast platform, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can get updates on new episodes.
0: If you love our podcast and our advocacy work, please go to www.GrittyNurse.com and click on the Support Us button. This will give you access to exclusive episodes and early releases on a monthly
1: basis. This will help us with the cost of running the podcast, the time and energy to put out awesome and informative episodes. And for that, we thank you and we appreciate you.
0: Hi and welcome everyone. Thank you so much again for listening, tuning in week to week. We are in our December months wrapping up for the year and we really actually wanted to go out with a bang. So we really wanted to bring back one of our most prized guests to talk about his book. And I think that, you know, this is actually a really timely discussion that we're going to have because I think it's going to touch on a lot of different things. But before I get into anything, I'll hand it off to Sarah to introduce our guest today.
1: I am so pumped to have Dr. Brian Goldman back on the podcast. He truly does all the things. He is an emergency physician, an author, a public speaker, a radio personality. He's been a regular medical columnist on CBC Radio 1 since 1999. He also hosts an award-winning current affairs radio series, White Coat Black Art, on CBC Radio 1. And he has a concurrent original podcast, The Dose, which has a similar medical theme. And Dr. Brian Goldman has been one of our earliest supporters, championing the things that we advocate for, and we're really glad to have him back on today. Welcome.
2: Thank you, Sarah and and Amy. You know, I think that you cut and pasted Amy's bio onto mine. <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, funny. Right. yeah. We are really, we, yeah. Uh, we're out there. We were, we 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 both spoke at a meeting of the Saskatchewan Union of Nurses and it was it was a great meeting and I really enjoyed uh, seeing Amy in action all feisty and ready to Oh my goodness thank get. you so it was, much it was
0: great yeah <laughs> it it was it was actually like my first time being in like a a, group, a room full of people cuz everything has been virtual, right? All of my speaking engagements have been virtual and it's such a different feel. It's just, you, you can feel the room, you feel the vibes and you can kind of get really connected with your, with the people that you're speaking with. So it was great. And your, your talk was great too. (laughs) Oh, thank you.
1: I heard so much about your guys's interaction out in Saskatchewan, you know, talking to the nurses there because there is so much frustration there and I think on Ontario, we've got frustrations. And then I hear about what's happening to Saskatchewan. It's just crazy. But just to bring it back to what we wanted to talk to you about, last time you were on the podcast, you had mentioned you were writing a book. That book has been written. It's out now. And it's called The Power of Teamwork. And essentially, it um, chronicles the importance of teams leading to better patient outcomes, happier staff, and more efficient operations. Can you give us kind of a high-level summary of what the book is about? So the book
2: is about the journey from me to we in healthcare and also and lessons for the world outside of healthcare. Because, you know, when I started to write the book, I realized very quickly that a lot of my examples of, of, of good teamwork come from outside of medicine, outside of healthcare. And, you know, I, in fact, in fact, a lot of my examples, I think, are applicable to my own personal life. You know, I, I, I have a, a sister who was diagnosed with young onset dementia. I can talk about that a little bit more at length, but I can tell you that as I was doing research for the book, um, I realized that I was living the book because basic message of the book is that if you have anything in your work life or, or personal life Uh, That's complicated. The more complex it is, the more you need a team. The more you need to assemble a team to make it to make it work. You know, in you know, because I know healthcare. I talked about healthcare, and I can tell you that I graduated from medicine with the kind of I alone, kind of narcissistic savior complex that that I'm going to breeze into the resuscitation room and bark orders, and I'm going to create order out of chaos, and and everything's going to be better. You know, and at the time I did work alone, but today I work alongside nurses. Uh, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, respiratory therapists, students, you know, learners, residents, and I can tell you that I'm I'm much more posed. I'm a much better physician when I function in a team than when I function alone. And I know it's better for my patients. Diagnosis is better. You know, it's more accurate. The treatment plan is richer. We think about possibilities that I can't that I that I've forgotten. Uh, maybe one of my students has has had a, a lecture on a, a disease that has recently been renamed, and now they can tell me the new name and they can tell me all the latest research on it. Because you can't know everything all by yourself, and and so, you know, I wanted to write about that process from me to we, and uh, I also, you know, my my publisher HarperCollins wanted me to see if there were any lessons that could be uh, taught by healthcare to the rest of the world, and it turns out that there are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I really like that me to we. And I remember even when we were in Saskatchewan, you talking a little bit about your book and talking about kind of the story and your own journey. And I think that, you know, having these conversations are hugely important. And I, I kind of think back to even just some of my interactions with some of my physician colleagues and some of some of the tensions. And I'm, I'm sure we'll kind of get to that, too. It's it's such a simple process and things that well, I shouldn't say it's simple. I should say that we should have been talking about this a long time ago. And the fact that, you know, this book, talks about all of these various different cases and different examples of, you know, great teamwork. Why hadn't we seen this type of information sooner? So one of the things that I always kind of, when, when I read through and I was kind of jog, it was jogging my mind, I was kind of like, why did you actually decide to write this book? And was there a precipitating moment or an aha as to when you wanted, as to why you decided to actually write this book?
2: Uh, you know, I, I had pitched a new uh, nonfiction book out to, to my publisher to to my, my uh, editor at HarperCollins. Uh, it was a book about medical errors, and it was a book about shame. You know that we feel in medical errors when it, when we make medical errors, and, and why we're defensive about not uh, about mistakes that we make instead of learning from them and and uh, making you know accelerating the process of making healthcare safer. Well, they didn't want that book. So they counterproposed uh, another book. My, my editor had this kind of weird confluence of ideas. They, they weren't a coherent concept for the book, but he wanted, for instance, for me to take the checklist, you know, the, the preoperative checklist, which has now become fairly standard across, uh, you know, in operating rooms around the world. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a pre-flight checklist in, in aviation. It's been adapted from aviation to the operating room. And the idea is that, Everybody connected with the operation gets together before the uh, before the procedure and introduces themselves to one another, and makes sure they've got the right patient, the right side of the body, you know, that they're operating on the in the right lung and not the left lung. Uh, what's, the op- what's the diagnosis, what's the operation, what are the anticipated complications, do we need blood, have we reserved blood, uh, are, or are we giving blood thinners, or uh, are we giving antibiotics, and do we have the right dose, and what are the patient's allergies, oh, by the way. He wanted me to see, examine, if that process of learning from aviation has been kind of sent back out in reverse. Has, has healthcare taught anything to the rest of the world? You know, when I started looking at the example that he gave, the preoperative checklist, uh, I thought of three solitudes in the operating room, scrub nurses, anesthesiologists, and surgeons. Uh, I realized that they're, you know, in some cultures, they're three silos. They're not a team. And do they get together and form a team? And, it, and, and how do they do that? And then, and then I, I learned about something called the OR black box, which is adapted from the uh, cockpit uh, data recorders and the cockpit voice recorders that are that are standard in aviation, and and Dr. Theodore Grancharov, when he was at St. Mike's uh, St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, uh, created this system that monitors everything that goes on in the operating room. And you know, as I learned more about it, and and you know, it 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 records uh, vital signs, diagnostic imaging data from the anesthetic machine. It, there are sensors on the instruments, So whatever's put in, used inside the body, if it comes out of the body, you can account for it and you can, right. you can have an accurate count. Uh, there are cameras with pixelated images because the idea is not to identify people in the operating room. It's for educational purposes only. They're, they're recording audio. So all the audio that goes on, the dialogue between the various people in the operating room, if anybody walks in, or out and they say something, that's recorded. And what this system teaches you is not only when errors occur, but the milieu, the environment that was going on when it occurred. And it is an accurate recording of good teamwork or not so good teamwork. And that's where I thought, boy, that this is the idea. And and I guess what I wanted to be able to do, you know, my sense of the culture of, of healthcare. Is that we're not very team oriented. We tend to resort to silos. We tend to other one another. So surgeons other uh, internists, internists other physicians, emergency physicians, physicians other nurses, and vice versa. And and so we're constantly existing in our own silos. And this device was showing us exactly how it happens. And so you know, I, I began to think that uh, the struggle. To get from me to we in healthcare might have great lessons for other domains, be it teaching, the military, law enforcement, uh, a call center, uh, a body shop, you know, an automotive repair shop, a car dealership. It doesn't matter. We all need to work better by working in teams. And a lot of us talk teamwork. You know, we say teamwork makes the dream work, but we don't actually understand what it means, let alone follow the precepts of teamwork.
1: Absolutely. I think that in healthcare, we talk a lot about teamwork. So we we use the term a lot. But when you actually break it down, do we function well as a team? And I am really big on psychological safety. I think that's one of the key ingredients to having an effective team because you can have the smartest people in the world being part of a team. But if people don't feel psychologically safe, they don't feel like they can share their ideas, then you're really not doing very well.
2: And Sarah, that's the point. The safety to say what you see is critical to teamwork. You know, when a pilot is flying the plane in the cockpit with the cockpit crew, he, she, or they may not see something funny dripping from the engines uh, over the wings, under the wings. A passenger might. And if, you know, they should feel the safety to say that to somebody, to the cabin crew, who can then pass the message on to the cockpit crew. And I've had pilots tell me that. They, they have that. You know, they used to have a, a rigid hierarchical system where the navigator was afraid to tell the pilot that, no, we're not 1,500 feet above, above the ground or 1,500 meters. And we're 150 meters above the ground, which means that if you don't change course quickly, we're going to crash. And planes went down because of that rigid hierarchical system, not because the technology was too complicated, but because the human factors made it difficult to do that. So in the book, I have a whole chapter on how you develop the safety to say what you see and why that's so important. You know, somebody with their own particular vantage point, be it a nurse, a respiratory therapist or the person who cleans, the service assistant who cleans the the stretchers and cleans the room following the operation, they might be in the best position to know that something is faulty, something's not functioning, and it could be dangerous. You don't want to have a system where they're afraid to say what they see, and yet in healthcare, often that happens. Now, you can tell me what happens when a nurse uh, says, you know what, there were dangers on the shift last night. What happens to them? Oh, yes, Brian, we we can tell you exactly what happens.
0: And this is actually like a a huge issue. And I don't I don't want to dig too much into it because I know we're going to get and I have just a quality improvement lens too, right? like we should be thinking about how can we continuously improve on what we're doing. And we tend to, again, when we get into those situations where we're talking about errors or where I've pulled everybody into the room from a quality improvement standpoint, that openness is not there in healthcare. When you get people into a room to say, hey, you know, we're not recording anything. We just want to find out what happened. People just can up and they say nothing. Or one of the elements that you mentioned, the element of shame, we see shaming and blaming. And that is like the other piece that we don't want to see in a healthcare type of environment. So I hope that, again, I want to get into this and really dig into the fact that, you know, we do have a little bit of a problem here with hierarchical structures. And again, that psychological safety piece. But there was another element that you mentioned, and I do want to kind of circle back to talk to it. It was really about the idea of you actually being a caregiver yourself. Teamwork in um, a healthcare environment looks very different from being teamwork from an essential caregiver. So you did mention that you are taking care of your sister right now who has dementia as well. So we've seen so many personal stories that you've had, some really inspiring, some really touching, and then a lot of complexity and nuance as well. Could you tell us a little bit about that personal journey from that teamwork aspect as well? Uh,
2: about five years ago, started getting some comments from my sister's friends that there was something up, that she was acting confused, that sometimes she didn't know how to play a game, and that she would have episodes of total confusion that were quite worrisome to them. She was in a situation where they tried to explain things to her husband, my brother-in-law, um, but he uh, said, oh, my sister's fine. And he himself seemed confused. And to make a long story short on that aspect, uh, you know, my sister was 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 diagnosed with young onset dementia. And it turned out that my brother-in-law was showing signs of dementia as well. So this was a family at risk. Uh, and so I had been receiving these, these urgent, increasingly urgent messages from uh, my sister's friends who were... Uh, concerned that her health was being neglected. She wasn't getting diagnosed. Most most of the time when you have somebody in the family with dementia, there is a partner who is intact cognitively and is looking after them and is able to kind of, you know, it's stressful for them, but they're able to keep things going. They're able to make sure that they get to doctor's appointments. Well, this was a situation that was a much higher risk because neither of the partners was able to function in that role of essential family caregiver. You know, I was looking on the edge of this and I was trying to help. And one day, my partner Tamara and I went to their home and asked to look through their documents. With their permission, we did. And I discovered that I was named as the alternate power of attorney. Both spouses named me as the alternate power of attorney if the spouse was unable to function in that role. Wow. Now, if you know anything about case law or guardianship law, you know that being the alternate is nothing until and unless the actual power of attorney resigns or you go through the process of discovering and, and having it found that they're incapable of functioning in that role. And in our system, we assume that people are capable until they prove otherwise. And it's, it's a lengthy and difficult process. Right. So I, and, and, you know, the next thing I heard was that, you know, from their financial advisor, was that there were some financial transactions that made me think, that made them think, and they approached me, as a trusted family member, I had been named in the file as a trusted family member, as somebody uh, who could intervene and could either confirm that there was a problem or, or or help them with the process of investigating it. So now I'm trying to take care of my sister. I'm trying to take care of their finances. I'm trying to assert my uh, power of attorney when I don't actually have the power of attorney. And I'm increasingly uh, having sleepless nights and worrying. And in fact, when I did, eventually when I did try to step in, and put a stop to some very dangerous transfers of funds. Uh, my brother-in-law did what a lot of people would do instinctively. He wrote me off. He said, "Get out of here. I, I don't. I don't want you involved. You know, I don't need you in because it's, you know, on an instinctive level, it's embarrassing to have somebody else comment on the way you're managing money." And so I'm that none of that surprised me. So so but, you know, but along the way, I I had to pick up allies. This was a very complicated situation, and I haven't even talked about my sister's medical issues. You know, she has deteriorated quite rapidly over the last year and a half. She had to be removed from the home. That was a lengthy process involved in in the Mental Health Act. I had to work with partners, geriatricians geriatric psychiatrists, home care providers. I had to hire home care providers. I had to hire PSWs on my own with an agency. I had to learn all about the essential. So, so it was a very, very complicated problem that continues to this day. My sister has been living in long-term care. Uh, she was removed from the home a year ago. She's been living in long in a long-term care facility since June. And since August, she she's started to have, as she has deteriorated, she's had several life-threatening episodes of aspiration. The first one landed her in hospital for three weeks. The second and third and now fourth have been managed by the home. And so now I'm trying to make sure that she's watched uh, so that she doesn't have a choking episode in the middle of the night because that can happen. So you can see it's a very, very complicated situation that uh, is full of rules and, and kind of, uh, and, you know, I've learned a lot of tips and tricks. But I can tell you, I would not have been able to get through this to the to this point in time without... The participation of the professionals, all the allied healthcare providers, both publicly funded and privately funded, my partner Tamara, my kids, my sister's friends who continue to provide some emotional support to me and to them. And it, this is an utterly complicated situation. Without a team, it would not be possible to navigate it. See, it sounds like
0: almost like the teamwork on the outside. So outside of healthcare, it seems like because maybe there's not that hierarchical structure or, you know, the patient is seen at the top of the hierarchy that, we, you know, we're we're supposed to be supporting the patient. And we're all kind of working in that way that it seems a little bit more efficient than within the healthcare system itself, within, you know working collegially with physicians or you know a PA or with you know the pharmacy team and it's kind of crazy that it's it seems like it works way better on the other end where you think it would work really well on our side like what we were just mentioning before but it sounds like yeah you know it's 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 pretty crazy that you even
2: think about it that way you're absolutely right amy and i'll give you like there are many reasons why that why that's the case the discrepancy but the key one is stress scarcity time pressure in healthcare, we have so much scarcity of resources, scarcity of follow-up resources, people we can call upon, people who will see people in a timely, who see patients in a timely fashion, who will provide something closer to definitive care instead of just kicking the can down the road. And uh, you know, we're, we're under stress. We 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 don't have oodles of time to deal with uh, to deal with complex patients and complex problems. We might if we functioned in teams. You know, and we're hearing right now about family doctors who are under incredible stress, especially if they're kind of out there alone. They may work on nominal teams, but are they really providing shared care? Or is, you know, is it like, let the emergency physician handle it? Uh, Not my scope, not my area. Let the emergency physician handle it. You know, I, I spend a lot of time in the emergency department making sure that the paperwork gets printed and handed out to the patient. Now, you could argue that I shouldn't be doing that, but I do it because, because I don't want uh, the patient to fall. I don't want the patient's follow-up to fall through the cracks, but that's our system. And I think it's one of the key reasons why, I mean, there are personality and culture reasons why we're not team-focused, but never underestimate the role of stress in, uh, and scarcity of resources in, in making it difficult for us to fall into teams because to enter a team whether it's 10 people you know, or 100 actors across five silos and, and three institutions, or it's just a dyad, just a duo, two people, that's the smallest team. You have to put effort, you have to invest time and effort into learning one another's strengths, superpowers, so that you can arrange your affairs so that you maximize everybody's efficiency. That takes great leadership and that takes effort and a lot of us in healthcare say, I don't have the time to invest in teamwork, even though if you do that upfront investment at the end of the road, down the road, you'll be so much better off.
0: I agree. They they, they try to make it like a learn module, which it doesn't work that way.
2: No, it doesn't work that <laughs> way. No.
1: Yeah. And I'm very sorry to hear about your experience and just hearing it from you, someone who has been in the healthcare system for decades, having to navigate through all of what you did. You know, I don't think your story is that unique, unfortunately, but if you were having this amount of difficulty, I can only imagine someone who is less um, skilled, less resourced, that maybe doesn't even speak English as a first language. How do they even navigate the system? And this is where I get really concerned. And I just want to circle back to something you had mentioned about just the hierarchy and the silos within healthcare. Like not only do we silo ourselves based on our profession, but even within professions, within nursing, for example, there's, you know, how long have you been a nurse? Uh, What type of nurse are you? And we kind of set up a lot of barriers for ourselves. And I just wonder if you have any tangible steps or tips that you can give someone to sort of feel more empowered to speak up or to question things when they're in a team and they know something is wrong.
2: I have chapters on that. Uh, One of them is, uh, take everybody uh, in the group to uh, improv class, and and have them learn. You know, just the basic basic improv exercises, comedy improv exercises are all about sup- learning how to support your partner on stage or your team on stage, supporting them, meaning throwing them a lifeline if they look like they're struggling. Which uh, you know, if we don't do that in healthcare, you you can understand where where the problem is. If we if we let people trip up, because because we are too busy or maybe because, you know, we want to teach them a lesson, you know, maybe we're teaching them that when the chips are down, they're not supported. So it's the wrong kind of lesson, but you know, sending them to improv class is a great way for them to learn some simple exercises. One of them is to have two of them stand on stage and play the game of yes and, and a lot of people have heard of yes and they've done it. Right. Basically <laughs> yeah. they're, you know, they're given a scenario that they're supposed to, that they're supposed to follow. You know, it may be a weird scenario. You know, you're working on the on the first uh, interstellar space station on Mars. You are, you know, the maintenance worker and the toilet is on the fritz again. Right. Go. There's your scenario. And the person has to and the person has to riff off of that. So one person riffs the other person standing beside them. Their job is to listen carefully and begin their response to what they've heard. By, beginning, by by saying yes, and yes is tacit acceptance of what they've heard, and and then you build on it. Well, the most important aspect there is not just acceptance, but before the acceptance is listening. How many of us in a meeting, a team meeting, a monthly or a weekly meeting, instead of listening, wait patiently without listening to a word, For the first bit of silence that we can jump in and say what we've been dying to say for the last twenty minutes. Well, that's not listening, all the time happens all the time, (laughs) (laughs) and and I'm guilty of it too. I'm guilty of it too. That's how I miss people's names. So, but so that's something. And then they they contrast that with yes, but, right. And you know, people saying you know, I somebody suggests an idea for a quality improvement in the emergency department at the, you know, the monthly meeting and somebody says, yes, but we tried that last year and it didn't work. Yes, but I can cite 27 papers that say that it doesn't work. And when we do that, we stifle people from making suggestions. Um, another way of getting people to, to feel safe to say what they see is to take them all to art school or take them to a museum and plant them in front of a work of art or you know, a work of art in the, in the, you know, along the halls of the hospital or the clinic and ask them three questions. What do you see? And, and, and and let's hope that nobody in the group has any art training because, because that puts them all (laughs) on a level playing field. So what do you see? And then the second question is, what do you see? And then, you know, the leader, the facilitator is paraphrasing and asks the follow-up question. What do you see that makes you say that? You know, maybe it's, a, maybe it's an image of two people. I see a man and a woman. Oh, what do you see that makes you say that? One person says one has longer hair than the other. And then another person says, you know, these days you can't tell by the hair. Um, I think it might be two people of the same gender. Oh, what do you see that makes you say that? So the first question is, what do you see? What do you see that makes you say that? Which is the critical thinking part of it. So that you're not just shooting from the hip. You're actually giving evidence for what you see. And then the third question, very essential, is what more can we find? Which, which, because usually the most aggressive person, the most confident person will speak first, the most gregarious, perhaps the person, you know, who's the most influential in the group. And everybody will agree with the first person because they have the loudest countenance presence. Absolutely. But then you ask, what more can we find? And somebody who's a little bit more reluctant to speak might speak up. And, and you know what? I think, you know, I, think it's, I think it's two people of the same gender. Oh, what do you see that makes you say that? Blah, blah. Uh, what do you think they're doing? Somebody says, I think they're wrestling with one another. What do you see that makes you say that? Uh, the arm position. Uh, what more can we find? Another person says, I think they might be embracing one another. Oh, what do you see that makes you say that? And, and, and what's happening is that in that process, what you're giving the team is the gift of uncertainty. And you're extending, you're leaning into uncertainty for a few extra minutes. How often in healthcare, or especially you know in the heated moments in the emergency department or in critical care, we want to get to the answer quickly. Get cut to the chase, get to the point. Let's settle on a course of action right now so we're all doing it, we're all working to help the patient. Sometimes you need to have a few extra minutes of uncertainty because you make cognitive errors when you cut off uncertainty. When you lean into uncertainty, even for a few moments, you allow some of those still quiet voices to raise objections to the plan that might actually turn the plan onto a more solid footing.
0: Oh, I agree with you. I remember reading that in the earlier earlier chapters about the art and I was like, Yeah, this is this is really amazing. And again, you also brought up the point that again in these healthcare environments, we tend to not have these these instances where that happens very frequently. And then the other piece of this is sometimes doctors don't play very nice, to put it simple. And sometimes they're not team players. I I can think of Many instances where I've had interactions with physicians, and I'll be honest, I don't know what it is about the operating room where um, we get into that environment and it can be very, very tense. And those are the main times where I've had those um, types of instances with physician colleagues where they've been really brusque where they were demanding and they were the leader of the ship, or you know, they threw instruments on the table or they demanded the, demanded that we we do something with the scalpel or have the mayo stand out. I have
1: seen it. You're young. I thought I thought that was gone. It is not gone. It is still here. I mean, they used to work somewhere where they have laminated the physician's very specific glove preferences. And God forbid, if you got a glove size that was even half a size too big or too small, it would ruin their entire day. And we, you know, we were just memorizing this chart if you didn't glove
0: the physician right oh my gosh those young nurses that we put in were like oh you know or training today and they were sweating buckets already i remember seeing this physician smack the glove out of her hand because she didn't glove she didn't open the glove up right for him and like these are the instances in which you know nurses like myself and sarah and other folks are like whoa we don't feel comfortable saying anything there are many instances, and of course, I can't get into the details where we're in the operating room and something untoward is happening, and nurses say nothing, or maybe they've mentioned it once, and it's it wasn't loud enough for the physician to hear and then there is an error that occurs. So how do we make physicians to be better
2: team players? It's a tough question i mean you know there are clearly some physicians we're not gonna talk- we're not talking about the physicians who have. You know, personality issues, uh, kind of well-entrenched personality, pervasive personality issues that are going to make it difficult for for them to be team players. And that and frankly, that's not something that that's at your pay grade. It's not something you should have to deal with. It's something that should be dealt with at a much higher level. And, you know, there have certainly articles have been written about about difficult about difficult colleagues. And, and what to do about it. Certainly one thing to do, you know, one thing you can do if you feel strong enough to do so is, is to have a conversation with them about, about what's eating them in general, because they may not feel like they're ever listened to, even though, so in other words, it may be a case of poop running downhill, where they are kind of preying on people, because in their own domain, they don't feel as if, you know, or in other domains, they don't feel as if they have Uh, the ear of other people that other people are listening to them or that it was done to them. It's kind of like the cycle of abuse, you know, it was done to them. So they're doing it to others because they don't know any other way, but think that it's certainly not up to the most junior member of the team to, to try to fix this. I think it's up to leaders. It's up to the leader on the team and the, and leaders on the team, they need to be able to facilitate the things that I've been talking about. And that is to, to lean into uncertainty to know and care about everybody on the team enough to know when they don't have enough sleep, when they haven't had enough rest, when they're not well nourished, when they haven't taken a break. You know, we, we you know, we certainly have to remove a lot of, uh, you know, the cultural norms in medicine, like celebrating sleep deprivation. We still celebrate it. We still treat it like a merit badge, even though we know it's not good for, I mean, it's certainly not good for pilots, and right. if it's not good for pilots, why would it be good for, for surgeons or for internists or emergency physicians like me or family physicians for that matter? So I think we have to, you know, I think I think we have to address those issues. But as far as facilitating teamwork, I think that the most important thing we have to do is is espouse the principles of teamwork, and that is helping one another, knowing everybody on the team, knowing their names and knowing their superpower. You know, one of the things that we can do as we get back to more in-person work in general, not just in healthcare, in nursing, but but elsewhere, is to is to you know have a meeting where we get where we we reintroduce ourselves to one another. One of the things I recommend that that people do is is not only say hi, my name is, and 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 uh, tell everybody a little bit about myself, uh, because I think we've forgotten that. I think uh, the the pandemic's made it difficult for us to kind of have an easy kind of conversational relationship with one another, and and then to have every member of the of the team name the superpower of somebody else on the team, not themselves. I like that. It's really powerful when it comes from somebody else. It means they've noticed, right? And if they've noticed, there's a good chance that everybody should notice the same thing. Now, after that, once you've kind of set the stage, what I, I think one of the most important things you can do is gather everybody together from all the silos and ask them why are we all here? What's our objective with a single patient? And maybe it's a patient with a particular kind of complex situation where we're trying to make the pathway better, you know, smoother and, and less likely to result in conflict between you know cardiology and internal medicine or medicine and, and surgery or ICU and, and the general medical floor. Bring them all together and ask, what would a successful journey for this patient look like? Have everybody chime in from their different perspectives, and everybody should feel safe to say what they see. Or you know, maybe you start in breakout groups and then get back together and, and, and have each of them work on different aspects of what that successful journey would be like, What would, what would make it successful for the nurses, what would make it successful for the physicians, for the surgeons, etc., and then get back together and agree on them. Because I guarantee you, that, in, you know, we act as if we in, in hospital, for instance, we act as if we don't know what a successful patient journey looks like. We assume right. it, but we don't. We don't actually, you know, I and, and maybe a, to me, a successful journey is being able to go home no more than an hour or an hour and a half after my shift and not worry about that that my patient's going to fall through the cracks after I go home or I'm going or that I'm going to get a call that says, Brian, do you remember so and so? You know if they're telling you about a patient who who had an unfortunate outcome, and for the nurses, it's going to be different. Maybe it's going to be that we're going to get the narcotic count right uh, and that we're not going to have an argument with the nighttime uh, the nighttime nursing administrator over whether this patient should be admitted to the floor you know should have a bed by now or not or or that the handover is you know to the ward is going to be successful and I think it it be it, it would be helpful for all of us to know what a successful outcome would look like from everybody else's standpoint because then we can construct team goals and once we have team goals now suddenly if I'm team oriented not only do I want to do my work well but I want to prepare my patient well for for the handover I want right. the referring you know the, the consulting team to be well briefed on my patients so they know all the issues that I have. And maybe we need to standardize that approach. You know, we, we haven't done a lot of that because we assume teamwork. You can't say because team, you have to actually drill down and figure out what you mean by that.
0: That is exactly what we do need to do. And I think there, there are those instances. I don't want people to think that, you know, all of my experiences have been horrible or or tainted because I have been in, in situations where, Uh, the team has come together and it's, it's magical. It's like a dance. And the thing is, I want to see that every shift I have, as opposed to like only with these groups, that this kind of dance this magical thing happens every single time. So how do we make that happen every single time with every other individual? It can't just be, you know, with a select certain
2: few, right? I can tell you that during the pandemic, we, I, you know, I saw the flowering of teamwork in the emergency department through protected code blues. I saw selflessness. I saw uh, people getting together from all over the hospital to not only help out uh, with the, you know, by being in the room where the protected code blue takes place, but the spotters making sure that you don and doff PPE uh, correctly. You know, I, I saw that in ways that I had never seen before. And I've been practicing emergency medicine for a long time. So I, I think it's possible. I think sometimes a sense of crisis can be what propels us to do it. You have to make the argument for teamwork. Teamwork results in a, a safer process, so it's good for patients. It's more efficient. It reduces the cognitive load on any one person on the team, so they are they're more relaxed, they're less stressed. And believe it or not, there are studies that show that uh, hospital cultures that espouse teamwork, that practice teamwork, have lower rates of burnout compared to those uh, that don't uh, espouse teamwork who are just, you know, mostly groups of individuals who are more focused on, on their individual distress than the distress of the team.
1: Absolutely. I can think of so many instances where I arrived on Shift and it was the people I loved working with and I knew it would be smooth sailing. And then there's other days where you get to the unit and it's like walking on eggshells because you either don't know what to expect or you know it's going to be a really bumpy ride the whole time. So I think there's just so much to be learned. I love all of your examples, by the way, of improv class. Like, I think it's not only tangible, but fun. This is a fun way to build teamwork. It's much better than spending a three-day retreat talking about things that we've already talked about, or we're not actually making connections with the people within our teams and deepening those connections. So I love some of your suggestions that are really outside of the box.
2: And I, you know, and let me add one more. We talked a little bit about shame. Shame was going to be the book that I that I was going to write about, and shame in healthcare. And and I think that there is this deep seated insecurity that a lot of people in healthcare bring to their jobs, where they're afraid that that somebody's going to tap them on the shoulder and say, "You don't make the grade." You know, some people call it the imposter syndrome, and maybe maybe that's kind of a Uh, A one, one way of looking at it, you know, I tend to look at it as I'm one mistake away from being asked to leave the room. And when we are kind of self preoccupied in that way, it's very hard to, to function in a team because you're actually afraid to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a, you know, in a team, you're not afraid to be vulnerable. In fact, you, when somebody needs help, you offer it. And that person doesn't feel like, well, why are you asking me if I need help? Do you think there's something wrong with me? Uh, you know, that kind of this perverse way of handling things. And, and, you know, in the book, I've got, uh, you know, examples, positive examples, just as you've experienced. And I'm sure you've experienced that, that when you are on that, you know, when you're working with the team that makes you smile and makes you say, today's going to be a good day, they pick you up when you're down. And they help you when you're overloaded by taking duties off your plate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had an example by Dr. Daniela Lamas, who's a, a, a critical care specialist in Boston, and and she got sold on the idea of critical care because she saw a wonderful teamwork model when she was an R two in medicine, and she was uh, you know tasked with trying to resuscitate a young woman who had liver failure and ultimate from Tylenol poisoning, and eventually needed a liver transplant to survive. And she thought it was her job to get the central line. If she didn't get the central line, the patient was going to die. And that everybody was just going to let it happen. And suddenly, you know, her attendant came in. Then a fellow came in, and somebody else came in, and they were all helping her. And meanwhile, other people in the critical care unit took over her other duties. And and they all worked together to 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 help the patient. And she decided, Daniela decided, this is where I want to work, because because she experienced the sense of joy and ecstasy that comes from working together on a team. And that's what you feel. And I think a lot, you know, we do feel that kind of occasionally mm-hmm. you know I think the you know maybe operating rooms feel that when they perform innovative surgery when they do you know multiple uh, heart and lung transplants sequential transplants when they do something really special but you know that could be part of your daily work you know a good save could also be a good referral dealing with a complicated situation I had a you know a colleague of mine um, had uh, a situation in which uh, she saw a patient who was having a psychotic break. And who uh, had a, uh, a young baby, like a, a newborn, and was faced with having to transfer to a, her to another facility to receive psychiatric services. But she was able to arrange to have things happen in the hospital she, and teamwork was the way that it happened. You could see that she felt a great deal of everybody who was connected with that patient felt a great deal of joy. You know, and and the team involved a psychiatrist, involved nurses on the psychiatric floor, nurses in the emergency department, social services, children's aid, other allied services. And, and she was assembling a team on the fly. It was really it was something to behold.
1: That's really inspirational. I love that story. I have one last question for you. So let's say you've had a conflict with someone and this has now Define your relationship. So you're now in this rut where every interaction you have is negative based on this one conflict you have. And I think some people are just at a loss as to how to move on, how to rebuild that relationship. Do you have any advice for how someone can do that?
2: If the, the two of you are, are on a certain level and you don't feel as if there's a power imbalance, then you might have a conversation with them. You know, I, I think that it entails some risk but I would risk being vulnerable with that person. If they choose to be invulnerable with you, then it's going to be, in, you know, in return, then I, I, I think it's going to be very difficult to get that, that relationship on, on, a, on a good footing. And uh, I, would, I, would, I would say that it was probably not destined to get back onto a good footing. If you're vulnerable with somebody who wants to to repair that relationship, they're going to be vulnerable with you. And then you'll have you'll you'll reach a deeper level of understanding in the same way that, you know, all friendships begin as, you know, they're wonderful friendships until you have your first argument and that you're either going to get past that first argument. I've always known that intuitively. You either get past that first argument or you don't Mm -hmm. or you just kind of become you know kind of superficial friends and you don't reach that deeper level. Well, how do you reach the deeper level? By being vulnerable with one another and being risking being vulnerable with one another. My most important relationships, particularly with my partner Tamara, it's it's based in a willingness to be vulnerable and to go through the tough stuff. That's the basis for all relationships. And if people think, well, we should never have conflicts of this nature, then then, you know, I think you're going to find it hard to repair that relationship. If there's a power imbalance then it probably needs to be brokered it needs to be brokered there needs to be a middle person who is able to insinuate themselves between the two of you and help navigate that because the power imbalance should not make it easier for one person to speak and and by the way that can work in both directions it could be that the person who's who's perceived as being less powerful perceives they're less powerful is afraid to be vulnerable because they think they're going to be squashed Mm. the person who's more powerful may also feel uh afraid to be vulnerable because they feel as if they're going to be stripped of their power if they if they exhibit vulnerability, so it's complicated, and uh, it shouldn't be you know necessarily the duty of either to to work it out. And you know, as you probably know, in, in hospital cultures these days, there are rules for, for dealing with these. I mean, you know, there may be union rules that are involved. It may be that that in that hospital culture, for instance, uh, I I don't take up my, my issues with nurses directly. I take it up with my chief and my chief takes it up with their, with the chief of nursing. And and so you have to respect those, those cultural issues uh, while trying to change them at the same time.
0: Wow. Yeah, it is definitely a complex and difficult uh, situation to to navigate, but definitely a a worthwhile and probably a rewarding one if we actually take those steps to make those those changes, because I think they're hugely important. And I mean, before we close, there was one last thing I kind of wanted to touch on. And I know we're kind of running out of time, but maybe even if you could just tell me off the top of your head, one of the things I want to ask you was we are in a very interesting climate in healthcare. There's so much unrest, political issues and challenges, misinformation. A lot of people that are that are mad with healthcare and are we've lost trust. Is there a way to using teamwork to um really try to change some of the behaviors and cultures that we've seen over the past three years? Or is it something that we are going to end up putting on the back burner because there's so many other complex issues? Or do you think it's something that we need to, again, focus on to see some different things that we'd like to see?
2: Well, Amy, I began our conversation by, you know, early on in the conversation talking about how stress and time pressure makes it difficult for us to be our better selves, whether Mm -hmm. it's being empathic with, with one another and with patients, or, or simply being able to do uh, our, our work to the best of our abilities, to the top of our scope of practice. And I maintain that teamwork isn't the cure for what ails healthcare, but it can't hurt. And we'll probably built in, build in more emotional and cognitive reserve for us to be our better selves on a, on a, on a day-to-day basis in our jobs you know, I think about, about, any, uh, I think about the, the poor souls, our colleagues who uh, feel as if they're out there alone. Yeah. Uh, whether it's a, you know, family physician or a nurse practitioner or could be, could be a nurse who feels as if they're the only one that's, that that's coming in to do uh, all those overtime shifts, you know, and, and working six, seven days in a row and, uh, and, and finds it difficult to, to take care of themselves in the process if, if, if there is more teamwork, you know we need more resources, we need more money, we need more people, we need to graduate, matriculate more people, we need to retain more people, especially nurses these days. But if we function more in a teamwork model, then that would be one less reason why nurses, for instance, uh, are thinking of putting their careers on hold or changing their careers altogether. And, and uh, I really think that, that teamwork is, is it's an attitude and it, it's one that can pay off in so many different ways if, if we simply let it happen and put the work into it too. Absolutely.
1: Wise words. I really like all of the parallels you drew, not to just work, but also your personal life. I think it's definitely a skill um, that you can use all the time. And I I think anyone listening who hasn't, bought your book or hasn't read your book definitely go out and do that the power of teamwork it's a great read it's a great listen you can get the audiobook as well i know amy has so thank you so much again for coming onto the podcast and we definitely have to have you back again soon
2: absolutely you know i love the gritty nurse podcast so uh thank you so much for having me you're doing great work yourselves as well exposing uh the issues that really need to be talked about thank you so much thank you